Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Captain Hunter's Podcast, the podcast that is dedicated towards bridging the divide between the police and the communities that they serve. Um, so this is really, really, uh, you know, some time that we're living in. There's always almost a, a story or something going on with it, when it pertains to law enforcement. So we're going to keep on pressing on and keep on discussing these types of, of matters. So I thank you all for tuning in, and uh, we're going to get right into it. Today's uh, guest that I have for us today is... Uh, Attorney Elliot Spector, former Hartford, Connecticut police officer. Uh, so there's a bill that's going on in uh, Connecticut. It's right before the, uh, actually it just got passed through the house. Uh, there's a vote going to be on it on Tuesday. And so we're going to see what the Senate says about this particular bill. Uh, so I wanted to have uh, attorney Elliot Spector come on the show. Uh, he's, uh, you know, well known amongst the law enforcement community, at least in Connecticut. He's very well known, taught a number of classes. He taught myself at the police academy, been teaching, I believe he's going to tell us since 1983. Um, and so he's, you know, really uh, just dealt with matters of law enforcement, defending police officers for alleged uh, abusive conducts and things like that. So we're going to get into it. Uh, we're going to have a nice, good discussion. He's going to discuss the bill. Uh, he's going to discuss how we can try to bridge the divide, try to get rid of some uh, negative uh, mythologies and everything like that. So it's a really good interview. I'm going to let him introduce himself. Uh, so without further ado, please make sure that you rate, subscribe, and share these episodes, right? Share these episodes. You can support the podcast through PayPal, Cash App, and Venmo. Also through the Patreon page, Captain Hunter's Podcast on, Ven on Venmo. Check out the YouTube page, Captain Hunter's Podcast, Facebook, Captain Hunter's Podcast. Those are uh, different pages. So please, once again, make sure you rate, subscribe, and share. Got a lot of good information coming up, a lot of good episodes coming up. So here we go. Attorney Elliot Spector. Uh, short notice. Appreciate no it. No problem. Appreciate it. <clears throat> How's your day going so far? Well, you know struggling with this police accountability law or yeah yeah um i'm thinking of uh, drafting a uh, i'm going to as a matter of fact draft a letter that police officers could send to their senators okay to try to deal with the situation okay i was uh i, I read over one of the proposed bills um dave yale just sent me i guess an update i thought i read the most updated draft so maybe i didn't i don't know and uh, so we can talk about all that, but uh, I wanted to, yeah, I just wanted to have you on and talk about it um, because maybe yeah. I missed it, maybe I missed it or whatever, but I didn't see anything really specific about the uh, qualified immunity and all that. So it's in the new uh, statute that they want to make where they're essentially creating a civil rights action in Connecticut. Uh, under our state law that's equivalent to a Section 1983 action. Okay. And my, my, my greatest concern is I understand that the uh, best way to try to forestall this is to raise constitutional concerns, and there are constitutional infirmities in this statute. And uh, in my personal biggest problem with it is there's no evidence for the proposed reforms. There's no evidence to support the need for it uh, in Connecticut. So... I think they ought to, first of all, make sure it's constitutionally feasible. And second of all, they ought to, you know, have a basis if they're going to have any type of reform. So, yeah, those are my two biggest things. Okay, so, so we'll get into it. So I want to thank you again, uh, Attorney Elliot Spector, for coming on the podcast. Uh, you taught at my, you might not remember, but you taught at my academy, you know, 1995. And, and, 1985, uh, yeah. No, no, 95, 1995. Oh, 95? Oh, no, I, I started teaching at academies, uh, <laughs> at least the state police academy down in 1983 and okay. doing in-service training back in 1981. Okay. I don't know where you were back then. Uh, I, I was probably in high school, middle school. Mid, uh, 81, I was, de no, I don't know where I was either. Middle school, I graduated from middle school in 87, so I had to be in grammar school. And then, uh, yeah, so, so anyway, regardless, <laughs> uh, I remember you from 95 and, and uh, you know, teaching our academy classes, and of course, the in-service trainings that you did, which we always thought were very fascinating, and uh, the, all the case laws that you would go over and stuff like that. So appreciate I just want to give you a chance to kind of introduce yourself uh, to the audience, and once again, I appreciate you being here. 
Yeah, obviously, as you said, my name is Elliot Spector, and I was a police officer in Hartford. I started there in 1971 and left in 1980, uh, just when I was finishing law school. I started to teach police officers. I started to represent police officers, and essentially, my entire adult career, including a period when I was at the police department in Hartford, a civil litigation officer, has been dealing with alleged police misconduct cases. Okay, very good. Um, so when you entered the police academy, did you know you wanted to be a lawyer or is that- you I just... never wanted to be a lawyer. I still don't want to be a lawyer. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but nobody's <laughs> twisted your arm. <laughs> and actually, you know, uh, I never really wanted to be a police officer, but when I was in college, it was during the period of the civil rights protests and the anti-Vietnam protests. And there was obviously a lot of violence that was going on during the protests. And being the liberal college student that I was uh, in attending those protests, I saw and heard on the news about this thing called police brutality and the way police officers were mistreating people. So I decided in my great wisdom that I'd be the white knight. I said, you know, I'm going to decide what to do here. And I was deciding between AmeriCorps, the Peace Corps. And then I said, no, you know what I think I'll do? I think I'll join the police department. You know why? Because if I'm a police officer, it'll be one less bad police officer. And so that was my motivation for actually, you know, joining the police department was just to be there for a couple of years, kind of as a matter of public service. But I learned when I entered the academy, it only took a day or two, that I was an idiot. Okay. And that the police officers and the people that wanted to be police officers were just like me. They just wanted to help people. They were good people and, you know, serve the community. And, you know, in, in my misperceptions about policing is what actually led me into the profession. Very good. So let, let's continue down that road there. So, uh, so fast forward, uh, you become a lawyer. And now today, there's, I know that you wrote a book, and I want to get into that a little bit later, though, maybe kind of jump around here but but you wrote a book called beyond black lives matter now i did read it i mean we kind of set this up very slowly i read it years ago so i didn't have time to review it so i apologize for that but uh so so you wrote this book beyond black lives matter uh what are your thoughts and about what's going on today as to the reason we're going to have this conversation what are your thoughts about what's going on and the police perceptions today well I think we have to go back to uh, why I wrote the book. I wrote the book because, you know, there's a story beyond what Black Lives Matter narrative was back then. And the subtitle of the book is, uh, you know, Better Relationships Through Knowledge Understanding. So what I did is I used resources that were not pro-police resources. I used government statistics. I used studies that were objective studies. I used... Uh, even ACLU statistics, you know, the Washington Post hugely used them. So anti-police sources is what I used so that the conclusions in the book were not mine and they couldn't be challenged. Uh, and, you know, the reality of the situation is what has occurred in the United States is pretty much a myth, a myth about widespread police brutality, widespread police racism, and it's been built up through this narrative that's been conveyed, you know, by these groups and obviously exacerbated by the media attention on these issues. Uh, so, you know, when, when I say it's a myth, let me, let me explain, you know, there have always been people that didn't like police officers, particularly criminals and some other people too. Uh, but, you know, they didn't have a lot of energy and most people respected police officers and worked and cooperated with police officers. Uh, but there was an attorney general, his name was Eric Holder, as you recall, and he had a specific written agenda and spoken agenda. I mean, he was very upfront about this thing, that he had a bias against police officers, and he wanted more police officers arrested for civil rights violations. And that gave some authenticity to the people that didn't like police officers. And then, of course, in 2014, we have the creation of the Black Lives Matter movement, that started up after the Trayvon Martin case. And people used that as an anti-police, you know, allegation when I think everybody in the world, including the people that are saying it, should know that it had nothing to do with police officers. And uh, they used this thing against police and then, you know, the, the movement started to grow. And of course, the biggest case of all early on uh, was the Michael Brown case. Now, the Michael Brown case, 
that is used as a case of celebrity for really the pivotal change that has been going on uh, in the attack on police officers. That's how I refer to it. And I think also any objective person with a rational knowledge of what went on uh, know, unfortunately, that this young man committed a larceny, used force, turned it into a robbery, refused to comply with the officer's demand to get out of the road, attacked the police officer and his cruiser, and then later on when he was leaving again, police officer verbalized he wanted him to stop, and again, Michael Brown came at him in an attacking mode, and the police officer acted in self-defense in shooting Michael Brown. This was investigated by Eric Holder's uh, Department of Justice, uh, the individual who wanted to arrest more police officers for civil rights violations, the district attorney went to a grand jury, and of course the people that heard and investigated this particular case knew that there was no basis to bring any charges against Officer Wilson, but still it was used against police officers as an unlawful shooting and a shooting based on race, which of course even Eric Holder had to say was not the case. Uh, and, and then we had the, the next terrible event, which was the Freddie Gray incident. And Freddie Gray, unfortunately, is a young man that had uh, been arrested approximately 25 times, uh, convicted five times on drug offenses. And the police officers were there, according to uh, instructions from the state's attorney's office, to weed out drug dealers in the housing project. And when Freddie saw them, he started to run away. A lot of people don't understand that when somebody runs away unprovoked in a high crime area, according to the US Supreme Court, that gives police officers reasonable suspicion to stop. So they started to chase him. Freddie fell down. The police officers picked him up, put him in the van, and it turned into a narrative of a police killing. Again, the you know judge, jurors in that case, the people who were doing the investigations, the people who were making the decisions found you know that the police officers didn't use any force against them at all. But yet it is framed as a police killing. So when I talk about it being a myth, you know, there really is a, a lot of myth and misinformation that is out there. Uh, if you go through the cases that are often used by the people that protest against police officers, uh, and you go back to 2014, and I've, I've done this because you know I do a lot of research on this thing. Um, in, in all those years, I found that there were, you know, five actual convictions of police officers for deadly use of force amongst those. And, and maybe I've missed some, and maybe there are a couple more. But five and six years is, is, is not a lot given the number of encounters that police officers have. Uh, over, over that period of time, you know, the FBI Uniform Crime Reports claims that police officers, you know, make approximately, you know, uh, 11 million arrests a year and approximately, well, something under, shortly under 500,000 are, are violent felonies. When you extrapolate those figures, you know, over a six year period, we're talking about millions of arrests. Uh, we're talking about, you know, maybe two and a half million, I, I'm not gonna do the math right now for you, of violent felonies. And with encounters that police officers have over the past six years, it, it's, it's gotta be over a billion encounters. And so, you know, yes, some police officers unreasonably use deadly force. Uh, some police officers unreasonably, you know, commit acts of brutality against people but it is relatively rare given the type of a job that a police officer is forced to do in dealing with crime and dangerous criminals. That, that's a, that's a, a long answer. I apologize for my winded answer. Oh, no, that's, that's totally fine. So I, I think that one of the biggest things that people want is, is, is what is definitely, I de definitely read in, or remember reading in the report is, uh, or the bill is uh, police transparency, right? When we talk about, um, well, let me, let's continue on first of all with, what you were talking about these different cases. One of the biggest cases that people would point to uh, as far as, uh, again, with the transparency, uh, you know, the reluctance to prosecute um, uh, police officers would be the Eric Garner case and Daniel Pantaleo in New York, right? The first I can't breathe scenario. In your estimation, is, was that, what were your thoughts about, about that particular case? Well, in that particular case, uh, we know that uh, unfortunately it was a minor criminal offense. Uh, unfortunately, you know, there was some resistance there. He was a large man. The police officers were trying to control him. And one of the police officers used the neck restraint on, on this individual. Uh, certainly the officer had no intent 
on killing the individual. And I, and I know that, and I know it from a personal point of view, because I will tell you that when I was a police officer, we were specifically trained on how to do chokeholds. And I'm going to tell you that in Hartford, where I was a police officer, there was some crime, and we did have some violence, and we did have some fights. <laughs> Occasionally. And, yeah. <laughs> and and um, it was such an effective technique that I believe, if, if not every fight I was in, uh, almost every fight I was in, I applied that technique. And the reason I applied that technique is because... I don't want to hit someone with my blackjack. That's how far back I go. I didn't want to hit him with my nightstick. I didn't want to hurt the individual. And what happened is it was an effective control so that I could use this technique and momentarily take the person into control without causing any harm. And there, were, there have never, ever been, at a time when police officers commonly used this back in my era to date, there has never been a single person in Connecticut that has ever been killed or even harmed because an officer applied a neck restraint. I'm not, I'm not talking about harm as far as temporary pain and discomfort. I'm talking about actual lasting injury. So, so it, really, it really is, and, and I'm not advocating for it. I'm not saying you should, you know, you know do chokeholds because police officers now have tasers. And, you know, back in the day, we didn't even have pepper spray. I mean, you know, so, uh, you know, there are other techniques of trying to use force against people, which, which aren't going to cause any type of serious injury. Uh, but I think the present standard by our post in Connecticut that uh, you should not use a neck restraint unless deadly use of force is justified, uh, I think that's a reasonable standard. Uh, so I think that based on, you know, what this officer did, you know, he just wanted to control the individual. Was it a violation of, of their policy in New York? It absolutely was a violation of their policy. Should it be subjected to discipline for violating department policy? Absolutely. Was he doing a criminal act? Well, not in my personal experience. And it's unfortunate this man died. Yeah, and so, well, it's definitely that, but that's, but I think that that's what's, that and the other cases that you named, and, and I would agree with you that the other cases were, were very much uh, uh, problematic as far as, the, as far as the narrative. But that particular case, you know, really kind of bothered me because I think that it's had something happened to that particular officer, Officer Pantaleo, then maybe that would have uh, directed Eric, uh, Derek Chauvin in George Floyd incident in a different direction, right? Maybe he would have listened and, and maybe shockwaves and ripples would have went through law enforcement saying, okay, you know, someone tells you they can't breathe. Maybe that would have caused a different uh, frame of mind with Derek Chauvin. Yeah, I think, that, I think there are problems in law enforcement and past law enforcement training on this particular issue. Um, uh, you know, a lot of police officers are led to believe and taught in use of force classes in the past that if somebody can talk, they can breathe. So when someone says, I can't breathe, yeah, you can breathe, you're talking, you know, and so, so they actually believe that. But I think they should take it as notice that maybe the person can breathe, but they're having some trouble. There's some medical distress. Now, I actually had a use of force class the very day that the, that the uh, George Floyd incident was publicized. And in the morning, we talked about the law as to what a police officer can do. Yes, a police officer can lawfully take a resisting person to the ground. Yes, a police officer under our Second Circuit law can place a knee on someone's back to try to restrain them for the purposes of putting handcuffs on. But as soon as the person is restrained, as soon as the handcuffs are on, the police officer should turn the person over, sit the person up, should not use any more force against that individual. And we explained that. And then during the class, late in the morning, someone said, hey, did you see that story that broke out of Minneapolis? And I said, no. So when we came back after lunch, we showed the video. And there were over 40 people, or 45 people in the class, including a couple of chiefs. Nobody, nobody thought that that was reasonable. Everybody was outraged because they didn't follow the law that we covered in the morning. No restraint after they're cuffed, okay? And on the ground. There just was no reason for him to do what he did. So, uh, you know, I, I think Eric Chauvin was on for 16 years in a big municipality, and um, I don't know anything about, and I would love to know what the nature of the complaints against him were. Mm -hmm. uh, that's an important issue. I, you know, I, I don't think it's correct to assume that they may not have been serious because you think if it was serious, everybody would know about it and need big media attention. But we have one officer 
who did an extremely outrageous, reckless, and different act. And we shouldn't be painting all the police officers, even in Minneapolis, with this broad brush that that represents the way Minneapolis police act, or in the nation, and definitely not in Connecticut. But that's what's happened. And that's, that's the reason that we have this, you know, this legislation. It's the knee-jerk reaction to a George Floyd case, which I don't know, you tell me, you know of an incident like that that's ever happened in Connecticut? I do not. <laughs> yeah, I don't. <laughs> yeah, I do not. I'm gonna. Yeah, I'm gonna be honest about that. I, I do not. Uh, so, so let's get to this knee-jerk reaction. Uh, your your thoughts about it? Um, do you do you think that that any type of action should have followed, uh, not just in Minneapolis or in Minnesota, but in Connecticut or or around the nation? In you know, police people the police have been for a while now because of these numerous incidents that people can, can drum up Tamir Rice and, and Walter Scott and stuff and, and all these different cases. People are lumping all this together and saying, we need to call to action about something to do about, about the police, defund them, disband them. Is there any type of action in your estimation that any legislative body should have taken? Well, before a legislative body takes action, they should have a basis and a reason for their action. In other words, there is something wrong that is occurring in Connecticut, because we're talking about Connecticut legislation here. So we'll start off with the name of the bill. It's the accountability bill. Are Connecticut police officers held accountable for misconduct? When an officer commits an act of misconduct, is the disciplinary process, is that imposed upon the officer? Does that work properly? Uh, are these cases going to the labor board? And are they making decisions that are neutral objective decisions, that are fair decisions? Are officers terminated? Are officers decertified? We have a decertification listing in Connecticut that shows that they are. Uh, we have to identify the problem. And I do not know, and I hope you can tell me because you have a lot of experience or anybody else can tell me, tell me a case in Connecticut where an officer has not been held accountable in the past. And because they haven't been held accountable, they caused a serious civil rights violation or a serious injury to someone. In other words, if they had been held accountable in the past, this incident would not have occurred. I, I want something there. Do you know of anything? Uh, I, I do not. Uh, I appreciate well, don't, you don't, I appreciate don't, you asking me, but I'm asking you. <laughs> well, I'm telling you, I don't. I don't well, know. And I've been deeply involved in, in this, obviously, for, for decades. And so what we have is we have here an accountability bill where officers are already held accountable in Connecticut. Officers are sued in Connecticut. Officers are held liable in Connecticut. There are punitive damage claims that are brought against police officers. There are police officers that are arrested in Connecticut, you know, and some of them are successfully prosecuted in Connecticut. There are police officers that lose their careers in Connecticut. So there are so many ways that we have accountability that has been imposed on Connecticut police officers who commit acts of wrongdoing. And you know, and I'm sure you agree with me, that nobody hates a bad officer more than a good officer, because it makes the good officer look bad. And so we go after them. Yeah, so I, I do agree with you very much so in uh, the letter that you wrote, that people are lumping these incidents that are happening in Missouri Minnesota and California and lumping all police officers with that. And so there's, in your words, a knee-jerk reaction by the legislature to do something about it, to appease the, to appease the people. So in your estimation, once again, is that this is occurring in Connecticut. We have mechanisms in place and it's working effectively and efficiently to decertify, arrest, convict officers. Is that? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Now, if you want to go further into the statute, we have this uh, limitation on interlocutory appeals and qualified immunity cases. Now to explain what that means is uh, we have qualified immunity to protect against warrantless lawsuits. And the first step is to determine whether there's a constitutional violation. If there isn't a constitutional violation at all, then of course the case is dismissed. If there is a constitutional violation, then you look at clearly established law. Did the police officer know at the time that they acted that what they were doing amounted to a constitutional violation? And we have case law that is relied on from the U.S. Supreme Court and the Second Circuit Court of Appeals that informs officers that your actions were unconstitutional. You shouldn't have done it. And when I'm talking about 
you know, some case law, it doesn't have to be very specific. It can be specific within the area which can be brought. Let me explain that more clearly. There was a case recently decided a you know, few months ago. It's the Truberg case out of the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, where a police officer tasered an individual and then some seconds later discharged the taser a second time. They found that the arrestee was resisting. So the first discharge of the taser was reasonable. But the seconds later, he was no longer resisting at that moment. So that taser was unreasonable and he was denied qualified immunity. Now, does it have to be specifically related to a taser? No. The rule that the court relied on is once someone is restrained, you can use no force against them. So if an officer had pepper sprayed him, an officer had punched him, an officer had you know, used a bar arm hold, they'd done anything with regard to use of force, that generally that officer would be denied qualified immunity. So what does an interlocutory appeal mean? Well, this qualified immunity was established to protect all government officials. It's not just the police officers thing. It's all government officials from unwarranted, meritless lawsuits. There's a second part of it. It not only protects them from the lawsuit, but it protects them from the burdens of litigation. Our taxpayers don't want to pay for meritless lawsuits. Our taxpayers do not want to pay to have government officials, including police officers, answering interrogatories, sitting in depositions, dealing with their attorneys, sitting in court for cases to be tried that have little or no merit. So therefore, you have the right, a fundamental right, the U.S. Supreme Court said, to have that issue of qualified immunity decided as early as possible so we don't waste time and money on this litigation. Let's get real, let's screen out the, the lousy cases. That's essentially a simple way of saying it. And so you have a fundamental right to an interlocutory appeal. This statute that we have now is singling out police officers as the only people amongst all the government officials who will not have the right to an interlocutory appeal. That's a violation of their right to substantive procedural due process under the 14th Amendment and Article 1st, Sections 1 and 20 of the state constitution. And also, they're denied equal protection under the law because the other government officials can do it, but not police officers. We're singling out a special group under these particular constitutional amendments, both federal and state. And so that's, that's a, a serious constitutional infirmity in this particular statute. But let's go for the basis of this. I want you and your listeners and people at the legislature to identify for me a case where an officer has done some type of egregious, clear excessive use of force case and been granted qualified immunity as escape liability ever in the history of Connecticut. Good luck. You're not going to find it. In fact, uh, your friend Dave Yale did some research. I don't know if he shared it with you, but he did some research on all the qualified immunity cases from the Second Circuit Court of Appeals for all last, last year. And he found there were uh, three cases where officers were granted qualified immunity. One of them I actually handle. And all of the cases were clear, no question about it, reasonable use of force cases, or there, in, in, in two of them were such minimal injury that it was a very insignificant case. In fact, the Trooper case, interestingly enough, that Taser case, the jury thought so little about the damages in the case when they first came back and awarded punitive damages against the officer. They came back and said to the judge, we're not war or, or rewarding the plaintiff with any compensatory damages for his injuries. So the judge says, you got to do that. So they went back and they came back with 25 cents. So we're talking about cops aren't getting away with murder here in Connecticut, okay, or in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. And so they should have that right to qualified immunity and for an interlocutory appeal. To go on a little bit, and I don't want to cut you off, you have a lot of oh, questions. But oh, good. <laughs> we, we have now something in the statute with regard to, you know, periodic testing of officers uh, with emotion from psychological problems or testing of all officers, I should say doing periodic urine tests of all officers. So what is the need for that? Well, I don't know. Can you identify any case in Connecticut where a police officers violated somebody's civil rights or injured a person because that person was on some type of substance 
because that person, that police officer had some emotional problems. I mean, what I'm telling you is that we're, we're passing these, we're, these laws when there's no need for it in Connecticut. We first identify the problem. What is that expression? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. So, but, but I, I think that again, I mean, I, I appreciate what you're saying about Connecticut, but I think that the problem is, is that, um, People are once again are looking across the country and saying, "Okay, we don't want these problems. So let's let's try to cut those problems off before they happen." Maybe we have not had an emotionally disturbed uh, police officer here in Connecticut, but but that doesn't preclude it from happening in a year or two from now. So let's let's put something in the statute to stop it from going on. Okay, and uh, I understand that argument. Uh, we have a huge sampling of police officers' interactions with people in Connecticut. Uh, I would estimate that we have approximately, not more, 3 million encounters. And my history goes back 50 years. They can go back 50 years. If you're going back 50 years with 150 million encounters and you don't have a single case, a single incident you can rely on, what are the chances of it happening in the future? What is the downside of this legislation? You are painting a brush. You are essentially telling to the public you're saying to the public police officers have incidents where they do harm to people because of substance abuse or because of emotional problems. You have police officers that are committing, you know, acts of racial profiling. So we need this statute. You have police officers who are committing acts of brutality and shooting people unreasonably and shooting people because of their race in Connecticut. That's why we need the statute. What are you doing? Through the legislation, you were kind of saying, we need to do this in Connecticut because we've got all these problems. And you're painting police officers in a poor light. You're negatively affecting the image of police. What is the downstream negative effect of that? People don't respect, they don't trust police officers, they don't cooperate with police officers. And what do you have? You lose the eyes and ears of the community. And you know darn well from your experience as a police officer, you need those people out there to give you information to deter crime and solve crime. Because if you can't do that, what do we have? We have more crimes and we have more victims. Second, we have de-policing. And you know that's happening out there. I'm not going to stop a car because I don't want to be accused of racial profiling. I'm not going to stop that person who I think may be committing a crime because I'm not going to get into an altercation with that individual or, again, be accused of profiling that individual. So I'm just going to sit back and I'm not going to act. That is happening in Connecticut. It's happening everywhere. Okay, and what does that mean? That means that people who may be otherwise criminals are not being stopped by police officers. Police officers aren't doing investigative detentions to determine if there's a violation of the law going on. Police officers aren't stopping motor vehicles, and so there's more motor vehicle violations out there. And what is happening? There'll be more crimes. And if we have more crimes, we have more victims. The biggest problem of all is that because of this media attention, and because of this necessary attack on police officers, we have a situation where people don't want to join the police force and too many officers want to leave. And there's nothing more important fundamentally to a quality policing than they have quality police officers. If we have good police officers leaving and we can't get good people to join, things are going to be bad for a long time. And what does that mean? Worse police services and more crime. We've got this, this part of the bill that talks about not allowing police officers and police officers, not allowing evidence of consent searches to be used in court. You know very well how, how many times drugs and large quantity of drugs have been taken off the street during consent searches, guns found during consent searches, dangerous criminals being found during consent searches. And we're telling police officers, nope, can't use consent searches anymore for evidence. Now, this is a remote constitutional issue, but every citizen in our country and certainly in our state has a constitutional right to life and liberty and familial associations. And if police officers are not allowed to do consent searches, then people selling drugs are gonna get away with selling drugs. People with guns are going to be able to use those guns that will not be taken away from them. Criminals will continue to commit crimes. People will die. People will be seriously injured. And they have a constitutional right to be protected by their government officials, which is being eliminated. Now, I care about that. 
I don't want my children or grandchildren to be killed. I don't want, you know, someone in my family to die of a drug overdose because they have a weakness. I don't want them to be shot with a gun that should have been taken off the street or killed or seriously injured or subjected to a crime by a dangerous criminal. I want my family to be protected. And if one of my children and children are out there, you, you hear it on the news all the time being killed by criminals, children, little children, we should care about those children. We should want effective law enforcement. We're eliminating effective law enforcement. And why are we doing it? I'm not exactly sure. But is it for the interest of the person who may be momentarily annoyed by a police officer who says, can I search your car? And that person can just, as you well know, say, no, you can't search my car. I mean, how do we balance out the life of our citizens and the risks of crime with an inconvenience by just being asked? Because you know consent search can't be coercive. Can I search? that bag, it just doesn't balance out. We're doing more harm through this legislation to the public and the taxpayers. Yeah, uh, well, I, I certainly am appreciative of your uh, explanation of that. And I, you know, I did a video, it was only like 11 minutes and I, I, I challenged uh, someone or anyone to tell me, you know, something in the law in the proposed bill that was, uh, that would stop officers from doing a job. And I have to say, listening to that, to your, uh, uh, explanation concerning consent searches that maybe I'll have to rethink, you know, my, my own uh, thoughts about that, you know, um, and you're right, you know, as, as long as it's consensual, I think that people, I think that the legislature, I want to say that they have, that they have the right frame of mind in trying to get the public to be, I don't even know what the right word is to get the public to be more in favor of the police, to get the public to be more relaxed around police. And many times in those consent searches, we can see some on, on YouTube. And I agree that YouTube and social media has done a lot of damage to the reputation of law enforcement. And so, so many times we've seen uh, consent searches, which have been questionable, maybe in other States. I mean, again, people are taking what's going on in other States and trying to apply that here in Connecticut. I want to get your thoughts about uh, the book that you wrote, Beyond Black Lives Matter, the problems that are going on in the inner city. You, you, you wrote about it in, in the piece that you wrote, how, how to uh, build up the communities, what's going on in some of these inner cities. What, what are your thoughts about, about that? How do we fix the problems? Yeah, I, and, and by the way, the way I've been speaking, it sounds like I'm saying that police officers don't do anything wrong when we don't have any bad officers, <laughs> and that's not true. There are officers, maybe they're not bad people, but there are officers that do bad things and that should be sanctioned, and we did cover that, but there's always, always, always room for improvement, and that's what we should be seeking, room for improvement, okay, and we should have better training of police officers. And I have a lot of good ideas. I, I think they're good ideas about how to better train officers. I'm, I'm preparing now uh, a course on teaching police officers on how to avoid incidents of misconduct, a real nuts and bolts course. And there are other areas of training outside of my field that we can bring up. So more and better training is always a good thing to do. And we should be accountable and we should be transparent. And we agree with these basic philosophies. Uh, but I think, I think the best thing that we can do is to reach our children. When I looked at the FBI uniform crime reports after I wrote the book, I'm talking about 2017 and 2018, and I saw the grossly disproportionate number of crimes, and I can give you the statistics if you want it, that are serious crimes. I'm talking about murder, manslaughter, robbery, violent crimes committed by young black people in our communities, and you mentioned the inner city, which is where most of this occurs. Um, that's sad. That's, that's a national tragedy. These, these kids are not bad kids. You know, they're, they're born beautiful babies, and God, they couldn't be cuter when they're toddlers, and, and then they start committing, you know, offenses at such an early age, and it's a real, real tragedy. Um, another thing that's not in the book is there is a a couple people who uh, entered into a life of crime. Uh, they're 40 years old, a brother and sister. And uh, one of them is, well, let me, let me, let me first say that uh, 
they're both going to be sentenced for drug offenses. They both have histories of drug offenses and drug sales. Uh, and the young man, I'm 40s young to me, uh, who, who is going to be sentenced in September, uh, may be sentenced to 10 years to life imprisonment for this sentence. Now, why am I mentioning this? I'm mentioning this case because 28 years ago, I deposed both of these people when they were 12 years old. Mm-hmm. It's a very significant case. It was a case where a police officer was chasing their 14-year-old brother who had escaped from Long Lane Correctional Facility. He grabbed him, he held on to him. And his younger sister and brother started to attack the police officer. They started to kick him and hit him. The 12-year-old girl said, you know, I hit him with the broomstick so hard that my hands were red. And the police officer is trying to hold on to this individual who is telling them, his sister and brother, to get his gun. He's got a gun in his pocket. The officer's holding his head so they can stop, so they'll stop beating his head and holding on with his third arm to this guy and it's not working. It's going on for about five minutes. He's about to lose consciousness. Looks over and sees a gun in the 14-year-old's hand. Pulls it back and shoots him and kills him. This 12-year-old sister and brother, because they beat this police officer, actually caused the death of their brother, tragically. And... You know, that is so sad because I look back at that and I say, if we had tried to help this young man, okay, Eric Reyes was his name. At 14 years old, he had a recidivist record already. Sometime when he was a young man, to try to point him in a different direction, to make better choices in life maybe he would have passed this on to his younger sister and brother. Maybe he wouldn't have been put in long lane. Maybe he wouldn't have run away. Maybe they wouldn't have beat the police officer. And by the way, I was actually shocked back then when I deposed them. And I said, did you know this was a police officer you were beating? And they said, yeah, it didn't matter to us. How can 12 year olds have this kind of thinking? And it's really saddened me. And it saddens me that we have so many young people that we are leaving behind. And so you, you ask me, how do we fix the problem? I think we get the police officers in the schools as teachers. We have wonderful SRO programs. We can, instead of having them in the hallways, we can have them in the classroom. Because these are the people, police officers like you, who have investigated, responded to these tragedies, who know the law, who know the consequences, that can talk to young people about this and give them a choice. Don't go down the road. Don't use drugs. Don't use guns and give age-appropriate lessons. Don't drive dangerously. Don't drink excessively. Don't have, you know, unsafe sex maybe or have sex at all or whatever, but to teach them, you know, about things that will help them live a better life. If we could bring down the grossly disproportionate statistics, then we're going to have less racial divide, if we have police officers in the school, we'll have more of an understanding of each other and better relationships with these young people, and they'll lead better lives. If I can just give you one other anecdote, because you're from Waterbury, right? And you were around when this happened. There was a car stolen by a young man. Waterbury officers tried to get him. They lost sight of him. He drove through an intersection, red light at 80 miles an hour, and he killed two people. I deposed that kid in prison. And the first thing that he said to me before we started the deposition is, Mr. Spector, can you, can you do a favor for me? And I said, what's that? Would you tell the family how badly I felt about what happened? And at that moment, I saw a young man with a conscience who felt terrible about what he had done. He's not a bad person. He's not a bad kid. He just made a bad life decision that not only affected his life, but the lives of the people he killed and their family members. What a tragedy. And I wondered at that moment, if we had some responsible adult that could have pointed him in the right direction, maybe, maybe it would have made a difference. We can't change all kids. We can't change most kids. But if we change just a few, it'll make all the difference in the world. Now, that's my idea. Well, it's certainly a start. It's certainly a start. Do you think that the that the way that, um, and you talked about the 12-year-old and, and they didn't care, and this, this divide, this racial divide, this, 
problems between law enforcement and um, in the community. What's your what's what do you see going on in the future? Is can it get any better? Can we fix this divide? Well, I I think we can, and the way we can, and what I teach police officers is that you know even though we have no evidence, unless you can again tell me differently, of a sustained racial profiling case in the history of Connecticut, I don't know of any and I can't find any. And I can't find any officers to tell me or anybody else. But anyway, maybe you can find one and send it to me. Uh, but we do, have, we do have bias. And so officers have to make sure that they do not let any biases they have interfere with their job, to pe treat people fairly and objectively, to be as good as possible to every single person you're dealing with whether the person is stopping and asking for directions or you're proning the guy out at gunpoint because, because he's a felon. You just treat everybody as well as you can. And I think that's one of the ways that we can help resolve this problem. Uh, but I think the best way is to, is to reduce the confrontations because the confrontations lead to the stories and the stories are looked at more unfavorably. Uh, there was an officer recently in Connecticut, who you know, okay, that was in a life and death struggle for his life. And unfortunately, he had to shoot this individual. And we had protesters out there in Black Lives Matter with a bullhorn down in your town, calling him a murderer. He wasn't a murderer. You know, as the state's attorney said, this wasn't even a close case. He was fighting for his life and tried to deescalate during the fight for his life, you know? And, but we have this misinformation because there's a confrontation. If you bring it down to a racial issue, bring down the statistics. When I, when I talked about the stats, I looked at the 2017, 2018, you know, these children under 18 years of age and crimes that are committed. I was shocked that 59.2% of persons arrested for murder and manslaughter were black African-Americans. 65.4% of robbers that were arrested, 50% of all violent crimes. And we're talking about 12.5 to 13% of our population. That is grossly disproportionate. Those are the people we have to target. We have to help them because they're not bad people. And that's what I'm saying. You bring down those percentages and that will help because they're being Shot. Use of force is used against them because, according to the Washington Post, that's when these confrontations occur. Because police officers are dealing with armed, dangerous people who are attacking police officers, committing crimes, serious crimes. And that's where we get the confrontation. Let's bring those confrontations down. And it's not because of someone's color or someone's skin. We have many people with brown skin, Indians, Pakistanis, Sri Lankans, yellow skin, Asians, and we don't have the same type of issues because if we look at their statistics according to the FBI Uniform Crime Reports, they're not doing the types of things that are gonna to lead to confrontations. I use this expression in my book that you may not remember, but if you get on the train tracks, it's a dangerous thing to do. If the train's coming down the tracks, get off the track. But if the train's coming down the track and you run toward the train, you're gonna get hurt. We have to take these young people off the tracks and make sure that if they are on the tracks and a train is coming, they get off and certainly don't run toward it. But that's the analogy of what's happening here. And if we can bring these statistics down to you know, 12 or 13%, I think that'll help greatly in resolving the problem. So, you know, it, it sounds like I'm, you know, being pejorative by using these statistics. And they're just statistics. It's not my idea. You know where the FBI uniform crime reports are. Uh, but it's sad. It's sad to me. Well, it's, listen, it's sad to me too, because, you know, obviously I'm a, I'm a black male and you know, when I hear these type of statistics and, and read about them, it's, it's depressing, you know, and this is, and 
I think that, uh, you know, people don't want, and I don't want anyone to paint myself as that, my, my children as that, my, my son's a young black male, my, my stepson's a young black man, my daughter's a young black woman, and I want them to be seen as, as good, upstanding citizens. And it's unfortunate that people would paint others with broad brushes, and, and, and that goes for whether you're a young black man or whether you're a police officer, right? Um, so I don't want anyone painted with any type of, of, of broad brush. And, you know, we have to, we, as the African-American community, have to recognize some of the problems and issues that we have and try to take some steps to, to do it. And I get the, what people want from the police, right? The, the, the high standard that we want. Okay, that's great. But, uh, you know, I also have a show scheduled to, to talk about these exact issues. Okay, Let, this is a problem. And we can't pretend as if it's not a problem. You know, the, the, the stats that you just read off. Yeah, you know, you, you really hit the, the nail on the head there. Uh, where police officers are painted with a broad brush, but also young black males are painted with a broad brush. And there are so very few young black males that are involved in criminal activity. It's an extremely small percentage, and it's unfair that good, upstanding, lawful, you know, considerate, that care about people, that care about people's property, that would never harm anybody, that they're being negatively affected by this, that they're stopped, that there's more fear of them just because of that. You are absolutely right. It's unfair. Well, I, th I appreciate you saying that, and that's important that you say that. Thank you. Thank you. We're recording this on a Sunday. Tuesday is the vote from the Senate. What's your, what's your feelings about that? Is it going to pass? Well, I'm afraid it's going to pass. I don't have any type of a crystal ball. I hope that they look at the constitutional issues. I hope that they reflect on the real need in Connecticut for this and the negative consequences of passing this type of bill, how it's really going to inhibit police officers from protecting citizens in all the ways that I mentioned. And it's gonna hurt relations. It's gonna, there's more harm from this bill than good. Let's step back. There's no immediate need to act. We've got this accountability task force. They're doing their study. It'll come out in January. Let's look at the information that we have and then let's decide what type of reforms are needed. Uh, but uh, whether or not they listen to that or not is something that I can't tell you because I, I'll tell you what I'm hearing. What I'm hearing is, well, you know, because of the coronavirus, we haven't done a lot this year, so we've got to show that we did something. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, <laughs> oh it's good. They're, they're going to be making these decisions not, not on the facts and the basis or what is good or bad. They're going to make their decisions based on yeah, we got to do something, political considerations. Plus, there's been a lot of screaming out there. There's been a lot of protests. And they don't know any better. It's, it's amazing how, and I'm going to use the ignorant word, not that people aren't intelligent, but ignorant in that they don't know the reality about the issues that they're dealing with. Take the time to learn before you make these decisions. That's my position. Do you have any more books coming out? Any more? I know you always got a lecture somewhere. So <laughs> what are you working well, on? <laughs> you know, I, I actually, I actually uh, am considering, and I hope I can get the time to do it, to write a book on uh, reducing police liability because there is nothing good out there and uh, for criminal justice students. So that's the next thing that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do. I'm going to work on, hopefully. Very good. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really, really appreciate it. I'm going to reach out to you again. Uh, just because I like hearing your voice there. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. All right. Thank you. Take care of yourself.